so grateful for your goodness to us. Thankful to be able to gather this morning and to sing about it. As we do, I can't help but thinking that there are probably some folks here this morning that have not known what it means to have a good father. Perhaps don't even know what it means to have a father who loves them, who cares about them, who protects them. Father, I am so thankful this morning that you are that good and just and right and loving and caring Father to all who would call upon you. And I pray this morning as we look at your word that you would show us who you are in it, that we would hear your voice today, that the truth of your word would sink deeply into our hearts and change us. I pray for those here this morning that may not have a relationship with you, that they might understand that the love and grace of Jesus Christ has purchased our salvation, that they can be reconciled to you today. Thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for your word, which explains it to us and reveals to us who you are. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. Good to see you guys in theater number two and theater number three, looking good. I can't tell who's there, I just see heads, no faces, So, uh, but we're glad you're with us and any, anybody that's watching us online this morning, thank you for being here with us as well. And thank you for your expression of love to us, to Melody and Gavin and I, our family, and I know that Tim and Pam and Talia and Justin uh, appreciate it as well. You don't need to do that. We're here because God wants us to be here, um, but it is very much appreciated. I did have talked with a few people over the last few months, couple of years. Apparently, there was a group of people back when Mossbrook Church started, before it was Mossbrook Church, and meeting in Ben's basement. There was a few people that made some kind of a 20-year pact, got together and said, Lord, Give us 20 years, we'll give you 20 years to build this church. Well, I can't help but realizing that we're coming up on that 20 years. I was not around when that pact was made, so I'm locked in for probably another 15 or 20. So all you 20-year people better be re-upping soon, because I don't want everybody just leaving me hanging here and doing this by myself. So uh, just a note out there. Uh, <laughs> I apologize if it's a little bit cool in here this morning and some of the other theaters. I don't know what it's like in those other ones, but uh, last week, Glenn slept through almost my whole message, and so I called the guy that runs the heat, and I said, drop this baby to 50. I can't have people nodding off while I'm up here. Uh, no, actually what happened is there's a panel up there that runs the heat, and none of us are smart enough to figure it out. So next week... Hopefully by then there'll be somebody who will come and show us how to turn the heat on in here. So my apologies that it's a little bit cool. But I do hope it helps you to stay awake. Uh, in 1665, a little bit of a history lesson here, the bubonic plague swept through the city of London. 1665. It was so devastating that 20% of the population of London died as a result. Now, I understand that we're in the middle of something that's been going on here in our country for the last 18 months. Uh, just by way of comparison, 
uh, in the United States, 0.2% of 1% of people in the U.S. have died with COVID. 20% of the population of London died when this plague swept through. When it was at its height, 7,000 people a week were dying in the city. If we were to compare that to here in Maine and our population, that would be like 16,000 people a week dying. If you can imagine the whole population of Oxford, Norway, and South Paris dying in the state of Maine every week, that's what it was like. It was terrifying. And they were trying to figure out what was causing it. Why are so many people getting sick? Why are so many people dying? And the scientists of the day and the people who were in charge thought that it was the air quality. See, back in 17th century England, everybody had coal stoves and there was a lot of pollution and, and smog of the day in the air. And they said the air quality is terrible and so they just sent out these public announcements and had people walking through the streets telling people, light fires, but don't burn your coal, burn wood, burn pepper, burn incense because it's the air quality that's killing everyone. Well... Unfortunately, it was not the air quality. It was the rats. London was infested with rats. And more specifically, it was the fleas who lived on the rats. It just keeps getting better, right? The fleas who are living on the rats were carrying and spreading this disease. And there was no end in sight. People just kept dying. There was nothing that they could do to stop it. Until in 1667, the Great Fire of London, which burned down almost all of the housing in the city. And with it, the rats. <laughs> and the plague was eradicated. See, the problem was not just that there was a disease. The problem was that they didn't know the truth about the cause of it. And because they didn't know the truth about the cause, they couldn't solve the problem, and thousands and thousands of people died. We have an obsession in our country today. It's an obsession with safety and comfort. And those two things have been elevated above all else. And I'm not talking about politics, and I'm not talking about COVID. But that is the priority in our country. Make everyone feel comfortable. We also have a problem in this country, a huge problem, and the problem is sin. And unless we understand the truth about it, then we cannot go about solving it. When safety becomes our utmost priority, that leads to unrealistic expectations. And unrealistic expectations can lead to deception and deception can turn and lead to outright lies. The Apostle John wrote the book of 2 John. That's where we are this morning, in the book of 2 John. And he wrote it to first century Christ followers as a challenge to know and to walk in the truth. And along with that, to challenge them and warn them that there were those around them who were teaching heresy. There were people who were spreading lies. Now, if you remember last week, when I was talking about 1 John, I said that John was the last surviving apostle. When John wrote 2 John, 
He was probably in his late 80s or perhaps even his early 90s. And so Christ had lived on the earth some 60 years before this. And so a lot of the people in the churches, a lot of the people that John was ministering to, they had not seen Jesus. They didn't know him personally like John did. And there were false teachers who were going around, and they were denying that Jesus had actually come. That he had actually come to earth and that he had lived and died. John's words are instructive for us today because, as we talked about last week, we live in the realm of Satan. Remember in 1 John 5, John said, we are living in this realm and Satan is the one who has much to say about what happens. Now, we know that God is in control, but Satan has a heavy influence on what is happening in our lives and in this world that we live in. In the book of John, in the Gospel of John, he called Satan the father of lies. And he said in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John, the only way to be free is to know the truth. What I want us to think about this morning for just a few minutes is that we can't possibly begin to understand and treat the problems in our country and in our communities, the sin problems without the truth. What we need to understand as Christ followers is that knowing and having the truth saves lives. The truth that is found in Christ drives everything in our lives. It shapes us. In Proverbs 23, 23, Solomon says, Buy the truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom and instruction and understanding. There's no more precious commodity in the world than truth. So as we look at 2 John here, we need to know this, that if we know the truth, we will be able to recognize the lies. So let's take our Bibles and look at 2 John. If you have your Bible and you don't know where 2 John is, it's probably only one page. Go all the way to the end and then backtrack a few pages. And I was looking at this this morning, I think finally my last message in the whole story. We only have 3 John, Jude, and Revelation, and I'm not doing those because... I hate to tell you, I'm going on vacation. And where I'm going, it's a lot warmer than it is here this morning. I'll leave it there. I'm so, I know I'm sorry, but this is my last message in the whole story. I've been doing this for 18 months, and I finally get to do a whole book. Tim has been complaining the whole... Have you heard him complaining all the time? I have to just pick this verse, this passage. Well, I'm going to teach the whole book this morning of Second John, all 13 verses. Let's start in verse number 1. He says, The elder, that's John talking about himself, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth. Now, you need to understand that when John wrote this, he was writing it like a letter. He wrote it on a piece of parchment or whatever he had at hand, and he sent it off by someone, a friend, a common uh, friend with these people that he's writing to, and they would take it, and they opened it up, and they read it like a letter. When was the last time anybody read a letter, right? But if you had a letter from someone that you hadn't seen for a while, you would sit down and read it with your whole family, and that's what John had intended here. And that's how we're going to read it this morning. We'll read through and we'll pause and we'll look at what John is saying here. So he says, the elder to the elect lady. Now, we don't know if this was an actual lady who had some children 
or if John is just calling the church that he is writing to the elect lady and the children being her members. Um, I read about five different commentaries. I looked up online. I read everybody I could think of. I read about five or six different guys, and three people thought it was an actual lady, and three people thought it was a church. So we're going to just say we have no idea if it's an actual church or if it's a lady, but it doesn't change the interpretation or the application of it. It says here that John loves them in the truth, and so do those who know the truth. This is the same word we talked about last week in 2 John, or 1 John. We talked about the word know. It means to understand, come to an understanding, to, or to learn, or to perceive the truth. And the word truth here means the reality. It's the opposite of illusion. So what is John reminding them? He's reminding them, look, there is truth. We need to know truth, and we need to live in that truth. The only way we can know it is by learning it. We learn it by studying. And John writes to them these things so they would study them and understand them. Look at verse 2. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. My friends, for the Christ follower, truth and love are indelibly connected. We can't separate those two things. We have to have both of them together. The word love is the word that maybe you've heard somebody say. Maybe you've heard me say it before. It's the Greek word agape. And this word, love, requires truth because the definition of agape love is doing what is best for the one being loved. It means not that I just give the person that I love what they want, but I give them what is best for them. It carries with it the idea that the person doing the loving knows better than the person being loved. Okay? If you're a parent or a grandparent, you know what I'm talking about because you have done this. And if you are someone who is not a parent or a grandparent, but you have parents or grandparents, you've heard them say something like, I'm doing this, right, Davey? Because I love you. And you're like, this doesn't feel like love. But it is. Because I know better than you. Because you're just a kid. What could you possibly know? The problem is when we're kids, we think we know any, everything, but we really don't, right? That's the kind of love that John is talking about here. This love does what is best for the one being loved. So the most loving thing that we can do for someone is to tell them the truth. Now, maybe you've heard somebody say that before. This is the most loving thing I can do for you is to tell you the truth. Well, that needs to be done with some grace and compassion too. We're not just, you know, doling out love. Here, let me tell you this because I love you and whack somebody over the head with a shovel so that they understand it. It has to be done with grace and compassion. That perfect combination, of course, is only found in Jesus Christ. But that's why it's so critical that we know Him well because we need to grow in the grasp of that perfect blend of truth and love that only Christ has. Look at verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. 
Rejoice greatly, literally exceedingly. I was so thankful to know that there were some of you and your children or the members of the church living in truth, doing what you knew was right. Now, unfortunately, we've gotten to the point in our world today where just acknowledging that truth exists is a distinguishing mark. (laughs) Oh, wow, you think there's actual truth too? Wow, that's amazing. I thought I was the only one. That's the point that we're at. I just finished a Theology 101 class last week with a group of folks that came. And whenever I do that, some of you have been in that class, the first thing we do is talk about the difference between subjective truth and objective truth. Do you know what the difference is? Those of you that have been Theology 101, you guys know. We've talked about it. Subjective truth is, this is what I think. This is when you hear people walk around today that say things like, well, this is my truth. I'm going to live my truth. What are they saying? They're going to say, I'm just going to do whatever the heck I want. I'm going to do what I think is right, what I think feels good, what I want to do. I'm the one who decides truth for me. That's subjective truth. It's your opinions. It's your experiences. It's your feelings. But objective truth is free of opinion. It's free of feeling. It is not affected by our circumstances. It is simply the facts. And that's what God's Word is. God's Word is objective truth for us. There are times in my life, even as a pastor, I appreciate the things that Mike said. I think he kind of made me sound, uh, put a little more shine on me than there really is. Because I'm a regular person like you, there are times that I struggle with what to do and knowing and doing the right thing. And there are times when it doesn't feel nice or comfortable for me to understand and apply the truth to my life. But if I'm a Christ follower, I must do it. And that's what John says. I am so encouraged that there are some of you who are walking in the truth. By the way, that's one of the reasons why this is so important. This is one of the reasons why it's so important and so encouraging to me that I can see all of you folks in Theater 2 and Theater 3, and unfortunately I can't see you guys that are at home, but it encourages me to know that I'm not the only one who cares about the truth of what God's Word has to say. The question for us is, do you know it, and are you doing it? Are you living it? Verse 5, and now I ask you, dear lady... Not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one that we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. John gives them a challenge. It's it's not a new one. In John 13, 34, Jesus said, Love one another as I have loved you. Now again, please remember, this is being written some 60 years later. So when Jesus told them this in John 13, you know what he actually said in John 13, 34? He said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Why did Jesus say that? It it couldn't have been new to love each other. Well, actually, the Old Testament law made some allowances. You've ever heard anybody quote? I'm sure you've heard them quote it. Ever heard anybody quote an eye for an eye? The Old Testament law made provision. Hey, if somebody wrongs you, you can get retribution. 
Now, there were guidelines about it, but that was in the law. And Jesus said, I'm telling you a new commandment. Love each other as I have loved you. How did he love them? Well, just earlier in that chapter, Jesus had got down on his hands and knees and taken a bowl of water and an old rag and washed their feet. He, he humbled himself. He sacrificed for them. And, of course, he was about to make the ultimate sacrifice by going to the cross. Love one another. This is a new commandment that I give to you. Now, 60 years later, it's not a new commandment. John says, I'm not telling you something you have not heard before. I'm telling you to love each other. What is love? Well, today, love is tolerance. Today, love is you live your truth, I live my truth. But biblical love is not merely emotion, nor is it simply a feeling but rather an act of the will. Look at verse number 6. And this is love. John defines it for us. This is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. This is love. Love is a resolve. It's a determination to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Love is obedience to Him and His commands. And if that is the case, then love must begin with the truth. Why is that? Well, just logically, if we're going to obey Him, we need to know what He has to say. We need to learn. Last week, you, if you were here, you might have heard me say, we we're talking about this knowledge that is not merely intellectual. It needs to be lived. It needs to be put into practice because we we're emphasizing the practice of it. But we must know it. We must learn it in order that we might obey it. And when we are fully obedient to the commands of Christ, when we live humbly the truth of Jesus, then the result in our lives is care and compassion for those that are around us. In John 14, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. In John 15, He said, If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, I can tell you're all very excited, and because you've seen what I've seen in verse number 7. Right? This is the part of the message where we get to practice our Greek words. Now, if you're a guest here this morning, you're like, man, I knew I shouldn't have come here today. But trust me, for the rest of you, show them how exciting this is. Because one of our words is in this passage. Did you see it? These people do not confess the coming of Jesus. You know which one of our words that is? Homologumenos. Homologumenos. I told you we would be able to use it again. A few months ago, I told you, Homologumenos means that we have, this, we have this creed, this confession, these truths, and what do we do? We all what? Nobody remembers. We all agree. We all say it together. We sing it together. When we stand here and we sing these songs, and Catherine or Joe or Tara or Melody lead us in these songs, and we all stand up and we sing these truths, we are confessing together this is the truth. This is what we believe. And the Greek word that the writers use in the Bible 
is homologuminous. And that's what John is saying here, but look that he is, notice that he is saying it in the reverse. They don't, now I know this isn't the proper tense because I don't actually know Greek. I can just read and I look these things up. But John says, watch out for these people because they don't homologuminous. They don't homologuminous. Warning, they don't agree. That Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They don't hold the truth about Jesus. That the Holy Spirit worked a miracle in the body of Mary and she conceived and bore Jesus Christ's physical body and he lived a sinless life and he died a sacrificial death and he rose again in power three days later and he's alive today in the throne room of the Father praying for you and me. They don't believe that. My friends, by the way, this is the gospel. The truth about Jesus Christ is the gospel. And we need to be careful because there are all kinds of churches out there who say they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe the truth about Jesus. Notice what John says in verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Watch yourselves. Do you have the brain capacity to learn another Greek word this morning? It's not as long as homologuminous. It's a nice little short one. It's blepo. Isn't that fun? See, this is fun. You guys, you don't know what you're missing when you don't engage with this stuff. That's the word blepo. John says, Blepo, watch out, beware. Because what happens is we can see a little bit of truth and we can swallow the whole thing and get the lies too. You guys that fish know what I'm talking about. You go out in your boats and you take that wicked hook And you put that juicy worm on there so that poor little fish just looking for a breakfast will latch onto that. What does he get? He sees the worm, but he gets the hook. That's what John is saying. Watch out. Watch out. Because you can see a little truth and you can swallow all the lies. And unfortunately, that progressivism is prevalent in the church. It's been so disheartening to me over the last six, eight months, a year, to hear guys, to hear men that I truly respected and listened to and read and enjoyed learning from say things like, we just want to love everybody. We just want everybody to have justice and equity and acceptance and now listen friends we need to act justly we're commanded to do so we need to love everyone we're commanded to do so but unfortunately when we're not careful with these things what ends up happening is that we deny that the root problem of all of society's ills is sin 
Unfortunately, when many people say that, we just want justice, we just want equity, we just want everybody to be accepted, we're taking sin and we're pushing it out of the way. We're saying, the problem isn't sin, the problem is injustice. The problem isn't sin, the problem is inequality. The problem isn't sin, the problem is lack of opportunity. That's causing all of the problems in our world. That's causing all the pain and suffering. It's causing the pain and suffering in our society is sin. And when we deny the absolute necessity of humility and repentance, we do not have the truth. Look at verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. The word, the phrase goes on ahead means wanders. <laughs> if anybody wanders away from the truth, the reality of the Word of God, and does not abide in the, I love this word, this is one of my favorite words, the teaching of Christ, literally that Greek word is a word that means doctrine. That's why we do Theology 101 and 202 and on up through. The doctrine, these are not just differences of opinion. These are not lifestyle choices. This is life and dead, life and death, the blood of Christ, the remedy for sin, the truth about Jesus Christ is the pillar of all that we believe. Look at verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, I would rather... Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John feels so strongly about this, he says, don't bring these people into your house. Now again, you remember way back when, just 25 minutes ago, we were talking about the fact that we don't know, is, is John writing to a church and its members or an actual woman and her children? Either way, John says, don't let them into your house. This is so serious that we need to make sure that we are not a part of it. Now, John was writing to a, to a culture that revolved around hospitality revolved around it. I mean, you just, you just continually had people into your homes, and there were some of these folks that were traveling and teaching, and, and John and Paul and some of these guys that traveled and taught, they relied on the hospitality of the people in the church. They didn't have homes. They would just travel to places, and folks would take them in and care for them and feed them and provide a place for them to stay while they taught, and then they moved on to the next town. And that's how the society was and he's saying be careful don't invite them into your home with that heresy because you don't want to poison your household now we live in I, I would maybe go so far as to say in some ways a kind of an inhospitable culture I mean we come in at night and we close the garage door and we shut the lights off and say don't anybody walk past the window we don't want anybody to know we're here you know walk in put your jammies on I'm in it's six o'clock and I'm done for the night but you still invite people into your homes. You know how I know? Because I see all the wires from the road to your house. Television, the internet, social media, whatever. Who are you inviting into your home? John says, remember the word? Blepo. 
Watch out. Take note of who you're inviting into your home. Verse 12, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Face to face. Without being together, so much is lost. For us, it's technology, our, our phones, our laptops, social media, whatever it is. For John, it was paper and ink. Even writing these words, John said, this is not enough. I want to be with you so that we can talk, so that we can be together. That's why we're so grateful for this place to meet. Because two-way participation is essential to Christian living. Receiving and giving. Passing conversations. Now I notice that Joe Fournier didn't sit in the front row. I picked on him twice last week. And I don't need, I, he, might not, he might have been in theater three, I think, probably. So I'll pick on Brian because Brian decided to sit front. Next week he'll be in theater three. Halfway through this, I said to Brian, I hadn't seen him at church for a couple of weeks. I'm really getting right into this with Brian. And I said, hey, hey, I didn't see you. Like, he goes, you know how easy it is for me to just walk out of the bedroom in my pajama pants and sit down in my chair and watch on the computer? And I said, yeah, and I guilted him and shamed him, and here he is today. See, <laughs> sometimes guilt does work. But you know what? I was thinking about that. You're right, Brian. Write that down too. Pastor said Brian is right. You're right. But I would suggest to you this morning that it takes good effort to be together. It's good effort. It's useful. It's helpful to us to be here. I noticed something the first week we were here, two weeks ago. Uh, we were standing talking, and everybody was milling around, and it was great to see everybody there. And, and Melody and I stayed, and we were talking to people, and we were, I think we were the last ones to leave. Maybe the two of us and Crystal were the last ones to leave. And I got in the car, and I started the car, and the little clock lit up on the dash, and I'm like, 12.35? Church got done at 11. Tim was speaking. He's always done at 11. I never am. 12.35, how are we here that long? But it was just us all standing around. And I realized that when we were at the office in the parking lot, something that I had gotten used to was when I was up front and closing the service and I would pray, as soon as I said amen, you know what I heard? Everybody starting their cars. I was getting home at 11.15 when we were at the office. Why is that? Because when we're not actually together face-to-face, -face, we don't have all of these conversations. We can't catch up. We can't see what's happening in your life. I can't tell you what's happening in mine. I don't see people standing over here to the side praying together. I don't see people hugging each other, putting their arms around them, and walking them through what they're ha what's happening in their lives. I have to be very honest with you that it encourages my heart when I see you here with my eyes. 
And I'll be equally honest, it discourages me when I don't see you. I need this too. There's no substitute for being physically together. Well, my friends, we're out of time and out of book. Do you know the truth? The truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you know it well enough, not just know it, but know it well enough to recognize the lies? The subjective thinking and the things that are devastating our world. Make everybody comfortable. Make everybody happy. Make everybody feel welcome. Don't worry about what's happening. Don't worry about what anybody's doing. Don't worry about what anybody believes. The problem is that that kind of thinking won't change people's hearts. In fact, that kind of thinking will doom them to a Christless eternity. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want to suggest to you this morning that living life together in Christian love is great protection against deception. In John 18, Christ was standing before Pilate, and Pilate was preparing to decide what to do with him. Would he release him? Would he condemn him to death? What would happen? And as they were having their conversation, Pilate looked at Jesus, and he said, What is truth? That's the question of our day. What is truth? Are you prepared to answer that? To the people who are around you. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's the truth. Now we're done. We're going to stand. We're going to close together. We're going to homologuminous. And sing the truth as we close our service this morning. We are so thankful this morning for... The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth, the guide in our lives who shows us what is right and wrong. May we never lose sight of the fact that our greatest problem is our sinfulness, that by humbling ourselves on our faces before you, by asking your forgiveness, by asking your strength, you will give us new life, what we need to live in this world. We're asking your grace here. I pray for every person that's here, Lord, that they would know what it means to trust you as their Savior. That we might walk in what we know, that we might do what we know, what we have learned here today. Help us to watch for error. To stay close to your word. And together that we would confess these things in our community. Thank you for meeting with us here today. We ask for your strength for this week. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for coming, folks. You're dismissed.